You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you in further. You step forward little by little not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls calls you to enter in to deeper waters. How I Changed My Mind About Evolution. Now, a lot of you out there could be listening and think, yes, well, of course, a lot of people believed in evolution when they went. They looked at all these evidences and such, and they came out, and they decided against evolution, and now they're devout Christians. Actually, no. These are people who are devout Christians, and some of them started out as very skeptical, and then came to see and their opinion, there was no conflict between Christianity and evolution. Now, I'll tell a little bit more about how I personally got more interested in this, but I'm going to introduce uh, my guest here. They're both from the BioLogos organization. Got two guests on the line. Our first one is Dr. Jim Stump. He's a senior editor at BioLogos. As such, he oversees the development of new content and curates existing content for the, content for a website and print materials. He has a PhD in philosophy from Boston University, and he was formerly a philosophy professor and academic instructor. He has offered science and Christianity an introduction to the issues, <coughs> while he's back where forthcoming. He co-authored with Chad Meister, Christian Thought, a historical introduction. He has co-edited with Alan Paget for Blackwell Companion to Science and Christianity, while he's back where 2012, and with Catherine Applegate, our other guest, How I Changed My Mind About Evolution. Dr. Stump, welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. Thanks, Nick. It's a pleasure to be with you. Now, if my audience doesn't know you that well, how did you get to be doing what you're doing today? Well, as you said, uh, my uh, graduate degrees are in philosophy, but I started out as an undergraduate major in uh, science education. My father was a was a middle school science teacher, and so I always had an interest in the sciences. But we also came from a devoutly Christian family, and so I was always concerned to try to understand how scientific information fit with my Christian faith. So in graduate school in philosophy, I emphasized the philosophy of science, always with an eye toward uh, understanding how it fit with, with uh, my Christian faith as well. And teaching philosophy for a number of years, that was also a topic that was of some interest to me, and so I started working and researching in that area, and then started working for BioLogos on a part-time basis to begin with, and have since here just finished my first year full-time with them, so I've gotten deeper into the, the community that's concerned about such things. And our other guest is Catherine Applegate. She's a program director at BioLogos. Before being the BioLogos Voices program, she managed the BioLogos 
Evolution and Christian Faith Grants Program. Catherine co-edited with Jim Sump, How I Changed My Mind About Evolution. She received her PhD in Computational Cell Biology, which I have no idea what that is, <laughs> Research Institute in La Jolla, California. At Scripps, she developed computer vision algorithms to measure the remodeling activities of a cell's internal scaffold, the cytoskeleton. Catherine enjoys an active involvement in both the science and faith community in her church. She and her husband, Brent, have two young children and love exploring the state parks of Michigan together on the weekend. Dr. Applegate, welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. Thank you so much. It is a pleasure. And the same question to you, in case people don't know you, how did you get to be doing what you're doing? Oh, sure. Well, it's uh, similar to Jim. I think these these kinds of questions, it's always a, a lifelong uh, story. I grew up in Texas um, in the Bible Belt and the Dallas area and uh, was just avidly uh, interested in nature. And um, so questions of science were really uh, close to my heart as a, a young kid. But I came to uh, know Jesus through a, a summer uh, youth um, camp at a church when I was about nine years old, and um, it seemed like even from that point, my memories of being a young person were just sort of pondering these big questions about how science and faith might fit together. And I don't remember having a major, you know, crisis around evolution, um, but I remember having a lot of anxiety about it in college when I went to a um, a liberal arts small liberal arts college with a, a Christian history and, um, you know, just started realizing for the first time that not, not everybody um, understood my faith and um, also just being in upper science classes and, and being exposed to some evolution. It sure seemed like there was this dichotomy of um, non-religious people who accepted evolution and religious people who, who, um, rejected evolution in favor of uh, Christianity, and I, I really felt like, you know, as I was putting together these unspoken uh, stories, it, it seemed to me like evolution might just be the sort of creation story of the atheist, their sort of explanation for how we got here, um, which I was happy to to answer with, um, you know, questions of God. So um, it was when I got to graduate school in La Jolla and at the Scripps Research Institute when I, I started to realize, you know, I, I need to have an answer for this question about whether or not evolution, there might be something to it scientifically. So if I'm going to be a biologist, I need to figure this out. So I really started on a, a series of reading, um, talking to people. I met some wonderful um, mentors who were Christian biologists who were very sincere in their love for the Bible, love for science, and uh, were were wrestling through that and they were okay with evolution and it took a lot of reading and conversations uh, for me to to be able to understand the evidence for that um, but then it, it you know became this big passion for me as soon as I felt this great freedom and you know this is the world God has made we can study it we can learn from it um, I really wanted to help my fellow Christians embrace that attitude and I got to know people as Biologos was uh, getting started, and I came on staff uh, full-time at first. I kind of did the reverse of Jim. Um, full-time at first, just after finishing my Ph.D. Um, in 2010, um, and then went down, and, and I'm, I've been part-time ever since my uh, four-year-old was born. So it's been about um, six, a little over six years, I guess, that I've been on staff. 
You know, great to have you here. Now, I'd like to tell the audience about how I got interested in this, that when I was at a Southern Evangelical Seminary studying, so I uh, had to take in my master's course a class that was mandatory, and I, I, I don't want to speak uh, this regarding the other class, and I think it's an important class, but I was actually put in an introduction to apologetics class, and a lot of people found that pretty humorous, and you've been doing apologetics for about a decade, you have your own ministry here, and you're taking an introduction class. Yep, I am. <laughs> well, okay, but I had to do a research paper on there, and I thought, what's an interesting topic I can research? I thought, how about science and religion, because that's such an important topic, and it's for a philosophy class, so why not do it? And while I've been at SES, it's a school focused on Thomism as well, the philosophy of Thomas Aquinas, and I started finding his arguments for the existence of God and his approach to epistemology and such very, very convincing, and I soon took those on. And I started thinking about the arguments for the existence of God, but you know, a lot of the ones we use today they seem to depend on modern science. But Aquinas and others back then, they didn't need science, and they showed the existence of God. It, could it be a danger if I marry my, my <coughs> apologetic to science? And I started looking and thinking, you know, I could take this argument and say it doesn't matter if the earth is young or old or whatever, or if a Big Bang Theory is true or not, this argument still works, everything is metaphysical. And then I thought, you know, the New Testament, I, I know so much about being an honor-shame culture, and too often we read our culture into the text. What if I've been doing the same thing with Genesis 1 through 3, and we read modern science into it, and it's not a scientific account. And I wasn't sure how to how to align those two, and then John Barton's work got put in my hands on the lost world of Genesis 1, and it kind of clicked at that point. Where, yes, this makes sense. I can go with this. Okay. And I've gone after the new atheists before saying, the new atheists talk about philosophy and history, and many of them are not skilled in philosophy and history. They don't have any business talking about it, and I realized I don't want to make the same mistake. I'm not skilled in science, so I don't want to talk about science as science. I can talk about the history of science, I can talk about the philosophy of science, but I can't talk about the science itself. And I realize, I don't have to be able to answer questions about evolution. I can grant it for the sake of argument and say, now give me your, your position. And I told you all before the show that, that my stance on evolution, frankly, is I don't know. I mean, if I woke up tomorrow and saw a headline that said, Southern Baptist Convention, all agree now that macroevolution is a fact, I'd say, cool, and move on. <laughs> if I woke up the next day and I saw a headline that said, National Academy of Sciences comes out and says, okay, we've all been wrong, evolution is bogus, I'd say, cool, and move on. It doesn't make a difference, and I don't say yay or nay, because I couldn't make an argument either way. So I just say, the question, ultimately, it doesn't really matter, but I really like Christians to know that there's no danger in accepting evolution, and a lot of people actually do it because they think there's strong evidence for it, and for I know that could be right. I mean, what do you all think of that? 
Well, that's an interesting position to take. I appreciate very much that uh, you're uh, saying you're not going to make pronouncements on something without uh, having a command of the issues themselves. Right. It is a little curious to me to say it doesn't matter. And I, I guess I'd agree in the sense if, if you'd accept the same uh, would apply to something like geocentrism versus heliocentrism. Yeah. If we tomorrow and the National Academy of Sciences says it turns out that the Earth really is still in the middle of the universe. Not many of us have the firsthand direct evidence for that, right? right. So, but it has become a part of the settled framework by which we understand the world. Hmm. So there, there's that element to this question that for you know 99% of the professionals in, in the area, this is the settled backdrop, the settled framework of understanding uh, the way the world works. So yeah. um, I think it does matter whether it's true or not, but yeah. To, yeah. Uh, to say we're able to discuss theology independently of whether or not it's true, that's you know, certainly something that's on the table. Yeah, when I say it doesn't matter, I mean, I'm not saying the question doesn't matter at all, but I'm saying from my position in Christianity, my argument for theism, evolution doesn't matter. My argument for resurrection, evolution doesn't matter. Those are left untouched. Now, the question from a scientific perspective, yes, it matters that in establishing Christianity, it's a non-essential area. I agree with that. Yeah, I... I, I would like to just add to that. I, I really appreciated you, you know, your emphasis in saying that um, apologetics today is often tied to science. And I'm with you in that I think the essential claims of the Christian faith are uh, not touched by particular findings in science. I think it matters from a practical standpoint for a couple of reasons. One is that, you know, for a lot of people in our culture today, in this historical moment, they feel as though the gospel depends on a particular reading of Genesis or other creation texts in scripture. And so for them, it's very um, disconcerting. It, it, it does feel very weighty and important. And so I think we have to, I'm glad you're addressing it. And I think we all um, have a lot of work to do in helping to show people why it's not one of the essentials. I mean, it, it for some people, I think, you know, they think, well, if, this one aspect, if we're wrong on this one aspect of how to interpret the Bible, then how do we know anything is true? And I just, I don't think um, the gospel depends on this, although I think it's a very foundational issue. It's not a, a gospel salvation issue, so to speak. It, it seems a lot of times we have Christians that engage in apparently all or nothing thinking. They start pushing a panic button as soon as there's one possible problem. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Uh, if I might add to that as well, uh, even going back to your previous question about how I got involved, interested in this, mm-hmm. uh, a, a large factor for me, so I taught philosophy at a Christian college for 17 years, okay, and and I was very interested to hear your own story of uh, John Walton's book, The Lost World of Genesis 1, mm-hmm. being in because for me, too, that book became uh, important, not that it changed my mind it didn't and i was fairly convinced of the the science of evolution before that but what that book did for me was give me a confidence to be able to speak uh more openly about uh evolution without fearing that it was going to contradict scripture in some sense because many of my students uh they would think that 
this was uh, a barrier to them holding on to their faith. So many for, for whom their story was growing up in a, in a Christian family similar to mine, perhaps, uh, but feeling as though they had to adopt this young earth creationist perspective because that's what all Christians do. And then they would go out in the, the rest of the world or watch the Discovery Channel and see the uh, massive evidence that there is for evolution and think, oh, no, I have to throw away my faith. So it can become an apologetic issue in that sense of showing that that science need not be a barrier to faith. I'm I completely agree with you that we don't need evolution to show that Christian theism is true or to show that the resurrection is is true. But for many people in our culture in the in the Christian culture in America, evolution is a barrier to faith. So understanding it properly I think can be helpful in uh, maintaining and even drawing others to Christ. Oh, I was just going to say the flip side of that is also true and that I think that for many people who um, might be considering uh, spiritual things or asking spiritual questions, um, the predominant prevalent rejection of, of evolution and science in evangelical churches today or sort of that posture of uh, threat that science is, um, that can be a barrier for people coming to Christ. So I think it works both ways in that if, if Christians understood the science of evolution better and saw that there was no need for fear, um, that you could still uphold and have a high view of the Bible um, and accept the accept Christ and all the, the basic um, you know, major doctrines of the Christian faith, that would be really helpful. But also, too, I think many more you know, scientists and unchurched people, if they felt like Christians um, were engaging in that conversation more, might be much more willing to engage with questions of faith. Yeah, and that brings us to the first major question here, because we had a list of questions we were discussing that we could try and get to Michelle, and that's that many Christians think that if you accept evolution, you must be a liberal. I mean, what do you all think about that? <laughs> I've been accused of that before myself, so <laughs> I nope. accused him of that sometimes. <laughs> and by this we mean of course the theological liberal. We're not getting into a political aspect here. <laughs> so the difficulty is if uh you define liberal about by uh, one's take on scripture, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. So for many people they think if you don't accept the literal interpretation of Genesis one, you're a liberal. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I hope that's not the correct definition of liberal, but uh, I know that that sentiment is out there. Yeah, I I think that, um, I mean, most people would laugh if they, uh, you know, people who have known me and known the people that I work with would call us liberals. We're, um, we're very serious about our faith and very serious about the historicity of Christ and the resurrection and upholding scripture and understanding it as well as possible. And those aren't necessarily the things that I think of when I, I think uh, theological liberal, I mean, I, I think we do fall down in different ways on important topics and um, yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe some would still use that term. I, I don't, I think I'm, I think we're trying to be orthodox and, um, you know, earnestly seeking to understand scripture as well as we can. 
I like what Dr. Stump said there about the idea of taking the Bible literally, because I read many atheist books. In fact, right now I'm reading Michael Shermer's A More Ark, because he's going to be in town next week, next month, I mean, debating my friend David Wood, and I want to be able to ask a good question, so I'm just going through about a 500-page book. I mean, that seems to me boring enough. But he talks in there, and many atheists are coming about a survey of Americans and how many of them take the Bible literally. And I mm. think every time if someone came to me from a survey organization such as, do you take the Bible literally? I'd just say, what do you mean by literal? Because if you mean, do you take the Bible according to what you think the intent of the author is? And I say, absolutely, I take it literally. But if you meant, do you take it in a plain wooden sense that everything means what it, it seems to mean to an American audience? I'd say, no, I don't take it literally, and no one does. Right. I think right. that's a good answer. Now, I, it's kind of sad that this kind of question, I think, has to be asked. But just to clarify it for my listeners, I mean, if we talk about the great creeds of a Christian faith, like, Nicene Creed and Chalcedonian Creed and such, and you all would have no problem whatsoever affirming those creeds, right? We do not. In fact, on the BioLogos belief statement, uh, many of those statements are echoed there, so... Sure. I mean, I I think, you know, many times um, people would uh, hear the term creationist and think that wouldn't apply to somebody who accepts evolution, but we actually... Um, prefer the term evolutionary creation to just talk about our viewpoint because there's this emphasis on God being the creator, which I think is the main point that you see um, relevant to these issues in, you know, the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, and and also the emphasis that you know through Christ all things were made, and that's something we very much affirm as well. Mm. Yeah, I I like how you talk about evolutionary creation and such, Chris. Like I said, when I was starting my journey uh, on these and thinking about science and religion, it occurred to me, I said, you know what, if Christianity is really true, and I'm convinced it is, no discovery of science could ever overturn it. And so if science shows evolution is true, well, we have to accept that. But I'm also convinced that a lot of atheists can go too far and think that if evolution is true, then it follows that atheism is true. Now... For the sake of argument, it could be, but if you're going to go about atheism as truth, you don't get there by science. You have to add in some sort of metaphysics or something else. I mean, would you all agree with that? Very much so. Sure. Yeah, you absolutely can't. You can't determine um, the things about you know the existence or non-existence of God from just purely observing uh, the way the universe is. Although we do think there's value in you know, thinking about the question of is is the universe consistent, and Jim could talk more about this, but is the way the universe is consistent with what we know about God and and all. So there's, there's definitely, um, you know, pointers to God in creation, we, we would say, but um, certainly not hard proof one way or the other. Dr. Stump, would you like to say something about what Dr. Applegate was talking about? Um, and... What you were saying earlier, too, uh, I think that too often the, the new atheists or whomever are using science to try to undermine theism, that their 
approach is we now have a scientific explanation for X, therefore God has nothing to do with X, right? And so then that draws us into some um, fairly tricky uh, discussions about divine action and how God's action is related to the other kinds of action or the other kinds of causation we see in the world. Um, but I just don't think it follows to say because we have a scientific explanation for some natural effect that God therefore has nothing to do with it. Uh, and we've gone through this, you know, through the scientific revolution. Uh, uh, for a while, people thought that angels were needed to move the planets around, right? Well, no, we now understand that there are laws that, that uh, state that pretty well. But that doesn't mean God has nothing to do with it. So Catherine was uh, just talking about pointers in, in the natural world to theism. And for lots of us, those underlying laws that seem to us to uh, be precisely tuned or designed for organisms like us to live and thrive seem to be a pretty big pointer toward that, right? So, yeah, there's several lines of uh, inquiry there that I think are fruitful to talk about. The divine action, God's action related to uh, other kinds of causation, and then... Uh, the fine-tuning issues that are also related to God's providence in the universe. Well, let's look at a bit of history, because a lot of people do have these kinds of questions. A lot of people think that if you are a theistic evolutionist, well, you absolutely must deny that Adam and Eve existed. Is that true? Go ahead, Catherine. <laughs> well, uh, Jim and I have both thought a lot about this. Um, everybody at BioLogos does, because that's probably the number one question that, that people are asking right now is about Adam and Eve and what we make of them in light of uh, current genetic evidence for evolution of our uh, species. Um, but I guess the short answer is that it does not necessarily follow that just because evolution is true that there was no historical Adam and Eve. Uh, there's a historic, there's a spectrum of views that are consistent with um, evolutionary science for how to think about this question, and I think it it helps to at least point out at the get-go that this is really a theological question. This is not something we can really settle um, by science. Um, what the science tells us from various kinds of genetics, uh, genetic ways of looking at uh, genetic diversity is that there was never a time in which the human population was as small as two people um, or even just a, a handful of people. Um, it was in the, uh, the smallest point in the thousands of people. And so people think, well, then, you know, how can you possibly think about, you know, your the first parents, Adam and Eve? Um, some people don't take them to be historically true. That's certainly the case. Um, others feel that Adam and Eve, um, on the basis of, of maybe New Testament passages or otherwise, feel very convinced that Adam and Eve uh, must have been historical figures. Mm. And one of the ways in which it's possible to reconcile that with evolution is to consider that they might have been um, ancient representatives, so they would have lived within a group of people, been two historical people, been the, the first two people that perhaps God called into relationship with himself and set apart um, for himself and, and uh, communicated with. 
um, and that through their disobedience, that disobedience would have um, spread out to the other people of the time. They would have been the um, the first ones and the representative ones. And so they uh, wouldn't have been our sole genetic progenitors, but they would have been our um, representatives in a really important and historical way, if that makes sense. I think John Barton would have said the same thing. In fact, I think he does in his book, The Lost World of Adam and Eve, where he does picture Adam and Eve as more representatives of mankind. I think N.T. Wright has taken a similar approach as well, and I'd say the late C.S. Lewis took such an approach, didn't he? He did, yeah. He described um, that sort of a scenario in... Uh, the problem of pain. I'm not sure if he wrote about that in other places too, but um, so there's a way in which that's a symbolic uh, kind of reading if that's, you know, they're representing rather than sort of a sin being passed down in some sort of genetic sense, which is almost what the Augustinian tradition seems to indicate that there's this, you know, strong inheritance of sin almost by, in a biological way. Um, not sure that that's what Augustine was thinking about um, in articulating that view necessarily. Uh, Jim, do you want to weigh in on that? Um, not about Augustine in particular. I don't have anything else to say there. I think it's uh, important what, to highlight what Catherine said, that the uh, existence or non-existence of a literal Adam and Eve is a theological question. It's not a scientific question. So... Uh, within the biologos orbit, there are people all over the all over the map on this that uh, we think it's important to continue those discussions, continue talking about it and researching it. I uh, myself am not persuaded that theologically we have to have a literal historical couple, um, but I'm certainly open to those that say yes, there must be one and as Catherine has described, there are various ways of accommodating that within uh, the natural history of the world that we have now. So, Now, let's go a little bit further in Old Testament history. Can you believe in a flood? And this doesn't have to be a worldwide flood. I mean, even uh, Hugh Ross's organization holds to a local flood. That's where I first heard about it. And I think a local flood is much more likely and such so can you believe that there was a flood of some sort well can you i think you probably can um how it best fits with all of the evidence so a month ago i was down in uh, kentucky at the new ark that answers in genesis built there mm -hmm. and their insistence on there being a worldwide flood really causes difficulties for the natural evidence that we see around the world and not just the geological evidence but also the biological evidence so they have to uh, reduce the number of species on board the ark to about 1400 they say 1400 pairs of different kinds and then they have to posit this massive rapid speciation after the ark so that those 1400 kinds can turn into the million kinds or to the million species that there are today and uh, one of the friends of Biologos has, has done a fair amount of writing on, the, on this and to get that kind of diversification of species after the ark 
you have to have new species developing every other generation so that nobody would have nobody's grandparents would be the same species as they were so that causes just enormous difficulties to hold to a worldwide flood to get the kind of diversity you see today okay and adding to that the geological difficulties of a worldwide flood that uh, yeah there have been lots of floods around so of course you're going to find some evidence but to have a worldwide flood there are very difficult problems like with the ice layers in Antarctica which have never been covered with water and uh, things like that so but then your question of a local flood well yes there could be a local uh, local flood then lots of people identify it with the Black Sea event um, you know you have to take some liberties you have to take some interpretive liberties with the text when you do that um, and there are there are ways I think of being faithful to scripture and still maintaining a historical Noah if you will um, but there again theologically I'm not sure that that is that that's demanded but again there'd be a range of uh, a range of opinions on that among people with, within biologos mm-hmm. Dr. Applegate, anything you'd like to add? Sure. I, I, uh, I would love to have an Old Testament scholar on the call, too, just to um, provide that expertise there. But, I, you know, from my reading, it seems that um, there are plenty of other um, ancient Near Eastern flood accounts, some that predate the, the biblical uh, record that we have, and... Uh, you know, it seems likely to me that there is um, some like vestigial memory um, that the culture had. I mean, all the surrounding cultures that there probably was some sort of flood event, um, which is recorded in these different writings. And um, I think the point of the text often gets lost in wondering what this flood was like, and you know, was it local? Was it global? Where was it? If it was local. Um, the point is about what God is doing in relationship to his people. And there's great theological truths that are lost. I think if we uh, focus too much on trying to understand exactly, you know, what the, the literal event would be. Um, but certainly, I mean, it's a, a story of um, God saving a remnant and bringing judgment on sin. And those things are, really important still for us today, even if we, you know, might fall on different sides of whether or not there was a, a global flood. Yeah, I, I really like that you said it that way, because sometimes I think one of our great mistakes is we approach Genesis and we expect it to be a scientific text. Now, it's not anti-scientific, I think, but it's not meant to be read as if God's wanting us to have a scientific account of how everything happens. And such. And I think even if you believe in a worldwide flood or a local flood, you can still get the same theological truths out of a text, and we can all learn from that. I mean, would, would you both agree with that? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah. And uh, Dr. Applegate, since you mentioned having an Old Testament scholar come on, well, sometime in the future we are helping to have that because we've mentioned him a few times, and he's emailed me a. Uh, couple months or so ago and said that uh, he's coming out with a couple of new books that uh, John Walton is coming out with one book The Lost World of the Flood very soon sometimes so I don't know when exactly but it is coming 
That's great. Uh, and I, is that the one he's doing, with Jim, with Trimper Longman? It is. Yep. Okay. Yep. So um, there's actually some really good material that his co-author Trimper Longman, who's a mm-hmm. Old Testament scholar at Westmont, um, has written on our site, and lots of good materials about the flood, um, which are fairly recent. We did a big, um, you know, created a lot of new content after the in conjunction with the Ark Adventure opening up that Jim mentioned. Now this next one, this is another big one in Christian circles. My father-in-law was embroiled in a controversy. Probably still is to some extent. Always claimed that he denied this one. And this one is just sent up red hearings to Christians. You deny this? Oh my gosh, you are <laughs> right now and you are being apostate for too long. That's the question of can you hold to inerrancy and be atheistic evolutionist. Jim? Well, again, the way you phrase the question is, can you? There are lots of people who do. So if that settles the question, yes, there are people that that hold on to that. BioLogos doesn't actually have a stated view on inerrancy. In our statements of beliefs, we affirm that Scripture is inspired and that it's authoritative. Uh, I know within evangelicalism, inerrancy can be one of those shibboleths that you have to uh, say it and say it just right, or like you say, you're going to get into trouble somewhere. I am, uh, so speaking for myself here again, I'm not persuaded that inerrancy is a helpful word anymore to use because it's been so used and abused over the last couple of generations. I think all of us, at least in the, the Protestant tradition, affirm that, first of all, we have to interpret Scripture, and secondly, that none of our interpretations is inerrant, right? Right. So already we've removed ourselves from, uh, you know, saying, well, here's what I think the Bible says, and it is inerrant. No, we're saying what you think the Bible says is your interpretation, and you can give evidence for that that is either stronger or weaker, but none of us are claiming to have inerrant interpretations. And since we have to interpret, it doesn't seem helpful to me to uh, claim that that it is inerrant. Now, by saying that, I'm not claiming the opposite, though. That I think it's errant. That, I mean, I don't. I would not call myself an errantist. I'm just right. saying I don't think those categories are too helpful. Mm-hmm. Now, given the reality of evangelicalism and institutions, there are many institutions for whom it is a very important term. And so to come back to your original question, yes, I think you can hold to inerrancy uh, as long as you have the the approach to Scripture you were describing earlier and your uh, discussion of literalism or not. Right. We can always say, no, this isn't, Scripture doesn't say it like this. This isn't what was originally intended. And inerrancy applies to the text itself, not to our interpretations of it. So, yes, it's possible to hold that the text itself is inerrant, while uh, we have to do our best to come up with interpretations of it that are uh, that do all of the evidence as much justice as possible. Dr. Applegate, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I'm, I'm with Jim on this. I think, um, you know, I... I certainly don't think there are errors in the Bible. Um, I think that any errors we bring are errors of interpret- interpretation. Um, but there's no denying that this is ancient 
writing. These are this is God's word to particular people in a particular cultural context. He's speaking to them in ways that they understand um, for a purpose. And so, if we are trying to, um, you know, draw out 21st century answers to um, a pre-scientific text, um, that's more of the, you know, I would say that's our problem <laughs> if we can't you know get the answers um in the way that you know that are faithful to the text so i guess i i'm a strong proponent of of thinking of god um you know condescending to speak to people in a way that they understood and um that's an important part i mean and, and certainly the absolutely in, interpretations do change over time and that's not a bad thing um, it doesn't mean that we're watering down scripture. I think it means that scripture is becoming uh, clarified as we learn more. And, uh, you know, science is not the only area in which we do this, um, but I think it's an area which is highly visible where people are so worried that scientific findings will trump scripture. And it's just not the case. I mean, um, it doesn't necessarily have to be the case that science trumps scripture. I think um you know, scripture, but at the same time, scripture can't just be understood in a vacuum without reference to the culture, to science. I I really liked hearing that. I've actually co-written an e-book called Defining Inerrancy, and the position of myself and my co-author is what we call contextualizing inerrancy, where we try and look at the context, but social context and historical context and everything else of the text and say, okay, now we have to look at this information and see what does it tell us about the text, because unfortunately we have an idea, and I think this is sadly largely an American problem, where we think the text should have been written directly to us in a way that we can immediately understand and grasp, and we don't need to have any of these scholars or anything else out there, because this is God's word, and it's supposed to be clear. <laughs> uh, that's true. I, I think there's two points to make in that in that regard that are important to affirm. The first is that I believe that God speaks to all of us through his word, and that all of us, regardless of our educational background and understanding of the text, can pick up the Bible and read it profitably and that we should do that so that's the first point the second point though is i hope there's somebody in our communities that can that does do the uh, higher education in the original languages and cultures that can help us read it better right so i think we need to affirm that you don't have to have a phd in order to read the bible but at the same time our communities need to encourage people to get phds in in the biblical topics in order to help us read scripture better. Yeah, I've often said about churches, for instance, that I think the church has long neglected its apologetic mission, for instance. And at the same time, I realize that a lot of pastors are very, very busy people, or they don't have the time necessarily to read the latest scholarship in the field because they're doing so much. So every church, I think, should have at least one, preferably two or three, go-to guys a pastor can send people with questions to me. And I've often thought, in fact, that we have ministers of music, youth ministers, ministers of administration, and everything. I look forward to the day when the church creates the office of minister of apologetics. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> now, along with that question of inerrancy, I've had some people tell me that, you know, if Logos holds the sense that uh, Jesus himself wasn't infallible, now, I went to the, to the website and I found nothing there on the statement of faith that said anything about that. I mean, what do you all think of that charge? That we believe Jesus was not infallible? Yeah. I don't think I've ever heard anybody accuse us of that, but I <laughs> would uh, certainly claim that Jesus as the Son of God is perfectly uh, infallible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure what um, such a claim oh, would be coming from. Because, because he, the, so a lot of times people will bring up what Jesus said, from the beginning he created them, male and female, mm-hmm. and interpret that to be... Uh, an unequivocal endorsement of young earth creationism, right. which I think is stretching the interpretation quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it just pretty much means like from the beginning of a human story, as it were. Mm-hmm. Now, we, we've been talking about this, but at the same time, I mean, this is a sensitive issue, and nothing that we're saying, of course, should be seen as chiding Christians who don't believe in evolution. I mean, like, as at the start, I'm still skeptical myself in many ways. Uh, do you understand the fears Christian ha- Christians have about evolution being true? Absolutely. Um, I think that, I mean, many of us have come from a place uh, where we did fear about, you know, whether it was true or not, or, you know, just had it, some vague unspoken anxiety about how to put science together with the Bible um, many of us are in churches where those are really live questions. I'm in a denomination um, where I'm having conversations with people regularly where they're, you know, voicing some, you know, concern, especially about the slippery slope. Like, well, if you accept evolution and you, you know, change your view of this, then it's going to lead, you know, lead down the slope towards liberalism. And, you know, you, that was kind of where we started out in this conversation. Um, I think there is a lot of fear there. Um, but I, I honestly think a lot of that is because most of the presentations of what evolution is are either be done, be, being done by atheist scientists. I mean, Richard Dawkins has sold how many books um, and made, you know, such a prominent name and very anti-religious. And so... You know, there are not that many well-known Christians who are scientists who are um, doing work in this area. It's been hostile to um, to Christian beliefs. But, I mean, since Francis Collins, who founded BioLogos, um, he's one of the world's leading geneticists. He led the effort to se- sequence the human genome. He currently leads the National Institutes of Health. Um, when he first wrote his book called The Language of God, in 2006, um, you know, it, he just had such a massive response, which led to him founding this organization. I mean, so many people were writing to him with questions and, you know, saying, thank you so much. I, you know, always wondered about this, but didn't know other people thought this way. And so there's been this great coming together and creation of a community at BioLogos where, you know, a lot of people are discovering us and, and realizing that there are a lot of like-minded people, people who love Jesus, who love the Bible, who want to understand theology and want to understand it in light of evolution and see evolution as something to celebrate instead of something to fear. Um, it's not an atheistic story. It's God's story. 
Dr. Stump, anything you want to add to that? Well, if I uh, might engage in a little selfless or shameless self-promotion here, mm-hmm. um, this book that Catherine and I edited, How I Changed My Mind About Evolution, is really focused on giving people exemplars And that's one of the important steps, I think, in taking away people's fear of evolution is becoming acquainted with other really strong Christians who take their faith seriously, who take scripture seriously, but also accept the science of evolution. So this book has 25 stories from people like that. that just It's not a technical book about uh, scientific evidence, but it's people giving their own testimonies, their own stories of, of coming to terms with uh, science and their Christian faith. And I think reading those kinds of things are more helpful for people for whom uh, evolution is a scary thing. It's more helpful than just diving straight into scientific evidence. Yeah, and I was rather surprised by some of the names I saw in here. I mean, N.T. Wright, I've seen him make some things before. I, I was pleased to see him in here. He's, he's one of the scholars I'd love to meet in the world out there. But others, I was pretty surprised that uh, John Ortberg, for instance, and Scott McKnight, and I, that, that kind of surprised me to hear that. And I think a lot of people would be surprised to to see that these Christians, that they respected all their lives and such, they hold this view and think maybe, maybe it's not so bad then. That's right. Yeah, I, I think one of the nice things that this book does, which, you know, there's been some other uh, books where... Um, there's been personal stories like this, but they're typically scientists talking about their Christian beliefs. Mm-hmm. And what's nice here, I think, I think with this book is we're able to get some um, really thoughtful and high-level pastors and biblical scholars, uh, philosophers, um, in addition to you know biologists and um, astronomer and and people in the natural sciences. So it's a really nice interdisciplinary look at this one topic and showing that people have, you know, some of the the themes come up again and again, like people discovering the idea that, you know, God uh, reveals himself not only through scripture, but also through the natural world. So this idea of the, the two books um, of, of scripture and uh, nature. And so when we're reading one and there's a contradiction with the other, it must be a you know problem of interpretation one or the other. It's not that there's some contradiction in what God is speaking to us. And so, you know, I think for many people in our community, that's a, a helpful um, or sort of a big um, point of understanding. Um, but a lot of people, you know, are just voicing um, a strong sense that. Jesus is Lord over life, and so it's amazing to study life, and we don't have anything to fear by that study, um, and it's okay to have some uncertainty. I mean, I think it's, you know, I, I certainly understand this fear, and it's not our goal in this book or at Biologos as an organization to convince everyone that they need to accept the science of evolution being true. I'm personally persuaded that I think evolution is true, um, but you know, it, I, I want people to feel safe to have a conversation, and that that conversation could happen in churches across America would be fantastic. And I think that's that's what we want to see happen: is people of different views uniting in Christ and really working through 
what their differences are on this topic. It's been so divisive in the church. And we got proof of that right here because I came on here and said, hey, I'm not ready to sign on my daughter line yet here, and we're having a great conversation right now. That's right. Right, yep. Now, you brought up Francis Collins, Dr. Epke, and I like to ask him if you brought up the new atheist as well, I think. I, you know, any thoughts on how Sam Harris, for instance, one of them in the, his book, I think, The Moral Landscape, went on about a 15-page rant about Francis Collins, and he's like, do we really want someone who believes XYZ to be in charge of a national genome project? And I'm looking at things. Well, um, if he's the best scientist in the field at this, yeah, I kind of think I do want him in charge of that. <laughs> I haven't read that particular piece. Have you, Jim? There, when uh, when Collins was first appointed to the NIH, there was a big uh, uh, to-do from some of the new atheist community about having this Christian be in charge of the National Institutes of Health. And I think since then, they've seen that those fears were completely unwarranted, <laughs> that uh, he did not try to turn the National Institutes of Health into some sort of uh, creationist apologetic ministry, but instead was there doing the best science and sponsoring the best science that could be done. And uh, so I think those uh, fears about him and his scientific credentials have died down considerably uh, once they've seen the, uh, the fruit of what he's done. I think that's something that C.S. Lewis has been one of the great ministries in the world that the best person in any field was a Christian. That'd really make the academic world wonder. That's right. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I would, I guess I would go and make the opposite point too, though, that I think God has um, given great gifts to even non-Christians and common, you know, through his common grace. And so, if the very best uh, medical doctor, cancer doctor, whatever is, um, if I need to go in and have some procedure, I want the very best. I think those people are not always Christians, but I'm so glad that that uh, Francis Collins is a a man of deep and abiding faith in Christ, um, and also you know so so competent and so good in his science. And I think he has a lot of respect from um, many 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 scientists who were not Christians read his book and because he was a respected scientist and I think are, you know, now open to taking faith a little more seriously. Yeah, and I think it's very good that you brought up people like Dawkins as well, because unfortunately a lot of people like Dawkins were bring out evolution and say, checkmate theist, and look, we've uh, deconstructed <laughs> your theism entirely. I mean, I've read The Blind Watchmaker. It, it was a good book. Unlike The God Delusion, it wasn't a big rant going on out there and such. It was a well-reasoned book. It, if I didn't know better, I would have never guessed how the author of The God Delusion was the same one who wrote The Blind Watchmaker. But I think there was a great error on the part of a, a lot of atheistic scientists that think that God begats theology is how we all work and that if you can prove evolution is true, where by golly, God goes right out the window. That's right. That was the point I was making earlier about divine action, that just because we have a scientific explanation for something doesn't uh, rule out God's involvement in the process as well. So. What would you say to Christians who are afraid about the topic of evolution, who are, for instance, that's why one of them listens to his podcast and then goes to bed at night and they're just lying awake saying, what if evolution is true? What if evolution is true? I mean, what would you say to them? 
Hmm. I guess I'd say, um, you know, God is a, God is a big God and we don't, none of us have him totally figured out. Um, and so if he should choose to do things through a mechanism that involves a long uh, span of time and a gradual process of development and evolution, um, that may not be so surprising given that we, we, and the way that we experience God in our everyday lives, you know, things don't just go from point A to point B. Um, we take a long time to mature in our understanding and our relationship with him. Very few people just go overnight, um, from, you know, being an atheist to being a Christian. It, it takes a series of twists and turns and conversations and books and prayer and, you know, thinking and, um, movement of the spirit in your heart. And I, um, I think that, you know, God works in the natural world in much the same way. Um, so he, he takes time and, um, it makes it beautiful. And yet there's unexpected things. I mean, there's, um, there's pain involved in both the Christian life and in the story of evolution. Um, and so I guess I would say, put your trust in Jesus and not in how we got here in a physical way. Um, be open to new ideas because we don't need to be afraid. I think Christianity is not we're told so many times in scripture not to be afraid. Um, but to keep learning and be open um, and talk to people who do share this point, this viewpoint, because I think many of them, you know, I, I know so many just reasonable, faithful, loving, generous uh, people who have this particular position on origins that we call evolutionary creation, um, who, you know, are utterly indistinguishable from other Christians in their church, except for this point. So I, mm -hmm. I think it's a, it's a matter of getting to know the, the people and the ideas um, which will dispel the fear. Anything to add to that, Dr. Stump? I guess I'd add that another uh, fruitful resource in this is to look at the history of Christian uh, theology. We've been through this before. We've been, you know, the, the scientific revolution, the only reason today it doesn't seem uh, to be so similar is because our worldview has so dramatically changed from uh, kicking the earth out of the center of the universe to what we know the universe to be today now. And Christian theology had to had the resources to accommodate itself to the world as, as uh, we've found it to be. So um, I think we have the resources again to uh, understand the truths of Christian theology within the context of science of how we see it today. And if Another generation or ten generations from now, there will undoubtedly be other challenges that we today don't see, that we accept as, you know, the settled backdrop of our beliefs. Mm -hmm. And uh, being able to uh, separate out these are the truths of Christian theology from here's the context that we find ourselves in the world today, I think is an important uh, tool for all of us to be able to recognize. Uh, if anyone's interested in the history of science that Dr. Stump was talking about, I recommend going back to our archives and going to June 8th of 2013. I had James Hannum on 
talking about medieval science, he's written a book, uh, God's Philosophers. I, I forget what it's called in another language, in another country. There's a, I think it's the Genesis of Science. There, there's an, an American version and a version for the UK, but either way, it's an excellent, excellent book, and it was an excellent interview on that topic. But at this point, I'd like you to know that you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. My du- guests are Dr. James Stump and Catherine Applegate from the BioLogos organization. But if you're here next week, you're going to be by yourself because I'm not going to be here. Because uh, my wife asked for her parents for her birthday some passes to go to Anime Weekend Atlanta. My wife is a big anime fan. And I, of course, am going with her and taking her. And sorry, people out there in the world of the Internet, but my wife comes before you all do. I mean, uh, you all are great. I enjoy having you here, but family comes first. But next week, we will we'll be back. Now, a few weeks ago, we had on Frida Bush talking about how to talk to your teenagers about sexuality and such. But what if your children are younger than teenagers? How do you prepare them for that? When is the proper time to have a talk, as it were, with him? Well, my guest is going to be Mary Flo Ridley on the 8th of October, and we are going to be talking about talking to children about sexual issues, how to train them up the proper way. So if you're interested in that topic, come back here, and even if you're not interested in it, come back here anyway, because it should be an interesting show. No. Now, to get back to what we're talking about, I've uh, tried to take as friendly a view as I can to people who are skeptical of the sciences, because, hey, I understand, or evolution, I should say, because, hey, I understand, I have my own skepticism, too. And I say, look, if you don't know the sciences, don't argue yay or nay either way, because chances are you'll just embarrass yourself to someone who does know them. But I say, if you wanted to go out there and try to refute evolution and whether it can be done or not, I don't know because I'm not a scientist, God bless you. I mean, I don't have any quarrels with you. Go ahead and do it. And so let's ask for them here. If someone wanted to, I mean, scientific community always should welcome critiques as far as I know. What would you say they should try to do? (laughs) <laughs> how would you yeah. uh, how would you respond if to say how should we try if someone wanted to refute the uh, heliocentric view of the solar system what should they do yeah. but I, I to take your question seriously yeah. um, I would first of all distinguish between uh, some different senses of evolution and the way the term is used mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. so when we talk about evolution at Biologos, we are primarily talking about uh, common ancestry, that all life on the planet uh, has descended from common ancestors. That's very different from saying, and here is exactly how that happened. Here are the mechanisms by which it happened. There's a lot of debate in the sciences on specific mechanisms, or at least the relative importance of different mechanisms that drive either the variation uh, from one generation to the next, or the selection of which of those, which of those offspring end up end up uh, surviving. So I guess for your uh, readers that want uh, a way into critiquing the science, I would suggest that it would be along those lines of what kinds of mechanisms are sufficient 
to uh, to cause and to drive the uh, common ancestry that we see. I don't think it's worthwhile to try to uh, critique and attack common ancestry. First, somebody should uh, really uh, get into the genetics of that because it's it's just been the last 20 years that the genetic evidence has become so overwhelming of showing the pattern of relatedness that there is among species. Mm-hmm. And, but to, uh, to say, is it possible to get that relatedness among all the species purely through random genetic mutations and natural selection? That's a fair question. Mm-hmm. And you'll find people all, uh, I'm going to a conference here in November where that's the, that's the question mm-hmm. is, uh, you know, our understanding of these mechanisms complete and sufficient. Not everybody thinks that. So that would be a worthwhile, uh, task. Mm-hmm. Dr. Applegate, anything you want to add? Sure. I, I guess I would just point out that, um, you know, it, <laughs> to Jim's point there on the end, is natural select, mutation and natural selection sufficient? There are certainly a number of mechanisms on the table. Um, all of them are natural uh, mechanisms. They are physical processes that scientists are uh, discovering and looking at and trying to figure out the, you know, what is actually driving evolution, um, how much of a, how much weight is, is one mechanism versus the other. Um, but what I think the question that you posed is um, there's something underlying that, which is that evolution, uh, maybe it's not true and that maybe, you know, some sort of divine action needs to be inserted there to make the the um, solution complete. And I would say there, um, that's not really what scientists are in the business of doing. Um, scientists are, are really good. Science is really good at uncovering uh, physical understanding of our world. Um, not so good at... Um, at figuring out the sort of the why and the how and the who. I mean, I think that's where we, we really need uh, theology to, um, if people want to refute evolution, um, you know, I think Jim's right to distinguish what do we mean by evolution? Um, in any case to do that in the scientific community, I think they needed, they need to be embedded in it. Um, they need to be working within it, talking to other scientists, presenting at meetings, trying to get their views heard, get grants, for doing experiments um, and and um, doing the things that scientists do, you know, but I think we have seen a number of attempts to refute evolution, but those are usually aimed at, you know, talking to lay people and poking a hole in an argument without um, properly understanding the basis on which scientific claims are made. And I think often trying to attack the uh, metaphysical assumptions um, behind an atheist atheistic science, which is a, totally appropriate to do, but isn't the same as doing, you know, science um, in the lab or in the field. Um, so I would say people should, you know, get into the lab and be doing that work. And I applaud those who do that. Um, I, I I think I'm with Jim again here on this point that, um, you know, common ancestry has been uh, with us for quite some time, has been... Um, confirmed in all sorts of ways and yet science is always changing I mean I I think we might um, discover new things to uh, tweak our models of how evolution works Um, 
but I, I really don't know at this point. It, so much evidence has been amassed that I think it would be very, very hard to under, to un, overturn um, the common ancestry thesis. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, for instance, my main area is history, and when I meet people who are arguing against the resurrection, for instance, and I can tell they haven't done their homework, they haven't read the best source, I say, look, if you want to argue against this, go ahead, but go and read the best material you can find and make sure it is by people who are scholars in the field. Go read the skeptics of the New Testament and go read the Christian scholars on the other side learn both viewpoints the best you can and then come back here and I tell people when it comes to evolution say look if you want to critique it go right ahead God bless you but if you want to please learn science as science study it as science and if you want to make a critique let it be a scientific critique please don't make it be the Bible versus science in any position whatsoever because as soon as you do that then the non-Christian world is going to look and say hmm well, I think I'll stick with science because I drive a car to work every day and I get vaccinations for my children and I keep my food cool in a refrigerator and everything like that. And if I have to <laughs> not believe in science to believe in the Bible, well, I'm just going to stick with science. Mm -hmm. yep. So as an example of uh, what you're talking about there, yep. quite often uh, the people who want to attack evolution will... Uh, say things that they've heard, at least others say, like, well, there's big gaps in the fossil record. Well, of course there are gaps in the fossil record, because fossilization is an exceedingly rare event for it to happen. But those people usually aren't aware of the fact that, uh, say, between modern humans and the last common ancestor with chimpanzees, which is understood to be about six million years ago, there are now more than 6,000 fossils of intermediate forms. I mean, 6,000 individuals within that that have been uncovered, many of those in just the last couple of decades again. So the evidence uh, that is there is often not understood very well by people who are just perpetuating the, you know, the sound bites that they've heard for many generations. Yeah, I think a parallel I could draw to Understanding the science is a very important first step toward engaging in this conversation. I think a parallel I could draw that is, I spent a lot of time debating people as a mythicist persuasion, and I, I, I can understand someone being a non-evolutionary creationist in many ways. Like I said, I don't even sign on a dotted line, but mythicism to me is a position that makes no sense whatsoever. There are fewer people in the in the academy in the area of history and such who question Jesus than there are in the in the scientific community who have questions about evolution as far as I'm concerned. But when I, I encounter people like this they often say, Well, we don't have archaeological evidence that we should have for Jesus and I mean you don't really know much about archaeology. We don't have archaeological evidence for a lot of people and I'm sitting back and I'm kind of wondering exactly uh, what archaeological evidence is an itinerant rabbi who gets himself crucified supposed to leave behind. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, we talk about if someone wanted to you know, go out there and argue against evolution, how should they approach a question and such. But what if one day 
science does change, and it turns out that evolution is wrong. What happens then? Well, that would be an exciting uh, development in many respects to mm -hmm. see. Uh, I, so it, there, there's a tension here between recognizing that science changes, that we uh, that we continue to uh, find more and better explanations for things on the one hand, versus uh, the settled the settled scientific doctrines that. Uh, continue to be incorporated perhaps in larger, more far-reaching theories, right? Mm. So I keep comparing I keep comparing this to geocentrism versus heliocentrism because right. you asked the question and I, my, my first response that's kind of sarcastic is, well, what would happen if we found that the Earth really is immovable and set on pillars? Well, that would be remarkable, wouldn't it? But I'm pretty sure that's not going to happen. And in the same way, as Catherine said in her last uh, answer, the evidence for common ancestry, I'm pretty sure, is not going to be overturned anytime soon. But we have to admit that uh, strange things happen from time to time. And there again, uh, I don't think it's going to affect uh, the central doctrines of Christian faith, so that's not something that I'm concerned about in regard to, you know, my Christianity. Mm -hmm. Dr. Abigail, yeah. you want to add? Oh, yeah, I, I think it, um, you know, if it turned out to be wrong, I, I would be very surprised. Um, I very much hope that I and uh, others who are invested in you know, believing that evolution is true would actually, you know, see the evidence, understand it, weigh it, accept it. Um, and, you know, all of us, I think, are prone to cognitive biases. We all like to confirmation. We don't like confirmation bias, but we're subject to it. And I think many of us um, tend to listen to things that, you know, and, and hear things in light of the things we already believe. So it's actually difficult to change our views on these sorts of things. Um, even in the face of strong evidence, which I think is why um, many people are, are still unpersuaded about evolution in the first place. Even though the evidence is very strong, um, they, they uh, feel very invested in their own particular view, which might disagree with that. Um, I'm not any different than that. Uh, I just happen to believe evolution is true. Um, I believe I do that on the basis of evidence, and I would hope that I would be humble enough to... Um, fully endorse that if that ever comes to be within my lifetime. Yeah, at the same time, I think you could agree with maybe what Dr. Stump said, but if it turns out that evolution is wrong, that's really not going to change your view on the censure of the Christian faith. Oh, no, for sure not. I mean, I, I think as we that's kind of where we started out with saying this is it's a really important topic, but it's not a, a foundational one for, for salvation yeah, like or for Christian that. truth. And like we just said about confirmation bias, because I do think it's too easy to accept ideas that sound really good, might have an emotion or punch to them and such, about looking at the hard evidence. Like I said, I'm going through Michael Shermer's book. And in many chapters in the book, he cites all this scientific research that's been done. I suppose that's really good. I can't critique it one way or the other. But then he talks about the Bible's approach. Morality, and I noticed there's a lot of emotional rhetoric that citing biblical scholars doesn't really take place. And as someone who knows the material where I'm reading through this, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this is, this is just 
offer. And I think that can happen to you often because a lot of atheists are encounter who seem to be, be people of reason and such by their own proclamation. They'll share so many things on Facebook and everyone er everywhere else that I can look at it as a someone who studies history and such and know it's absolutely bogus. But it's shared because, you know, it agrees with what we already believe, so we should just accept it. Hmm. Yeah. A lot of people do have questions about biblical interpretation when this comes up. And one such passage that gets brought up entirely is Romans 5.14. Hardly you can have a debate on this about Romans 5.14 coming up about saying, In Adam we all died. And saying, well, see, Jesus, if you have death going on before Adam, then you have a problem here. And this isn't just a problem, supposedly, for evolutionary creationists. It'd be a problem for old earth creationists who don't hold for an evolutionary viewpoint. So when we get to Romans 5.14, do we just throw in the towel or say, hey, that scripture has to be wrong? What do we do? Well, again, there are, I think, several uh, ways you can go with this. Um, and there isn't, again, one official Biologos view on this. I would uh, like to draw your uh, listeners' attention, though, to the fact of a new book that's coming out soon by Scott McKnight and Dennis Venema called Adam and the Genome, where Dennis Venema is one of the geneticists that we work with a lot, and Scott McKnight, a New Testament scholar, have uh, co-written a book that I think will be out here within the next month um, on Baker Press. And Scott McKnight's uh, view on this is really interesting and worth exploring. So one of the things he has done is to show that there's a large body of extra-biblical literature of the same time period that draws on Adam, that uses Adam to tell their own, to tell the stories that they're concerned with. And so he makes the case plausibly that Paul in Romans is drawing on a genre of literature that uh, uses Adam to illustrate his point. And I think it's really important to point out that it's not quite fair to just skip right to Romans chapter 5, where you see the first several chapters of Romans, Paul makes the case that all of us sin and that Christ is the answer to this. And that gospel message is brought up without any reference to Adam whatsoever. And so it's almost like when you get to Romans 5, it's Paul saying, hey, you, you might think about it like this. Here's a way of connecting this for his readers that are uh, very familiar with, this liter with the, you know, the big genre of literature on Adam. So that's one way. Um, there are other ways. So some of, your, uh, some of your listeners will be familiar with the work of Peter Enns who uh, his claim is, yes, Paul probably thought that Adam was a historical figure, but he was just wrong, right? That brings up red flags for a lot of people, because then we have to get involved in uh, issues of what does biblical inspiration mean? Did the human authors of Scripture believe things that were incorrect about the world? Yes, of course they did. But did those things find their way into Scripture? What's the relationship between their beliefs about the world around them and you know, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? So that becomes pretty tricky for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, so there are other ways of, of addressing this as well. Is Paul, is Paul really making the case that there was no death at all before Adam? That's the way young earth creationists interpret that passage. 
it doesn't seem mm-hmm. as though he is talking about uh, non-human life. Uh, it, I mean, he's drawing specific parallels to uh, to to human beings in this chapter, right? Not just speaking of life in general. Mm-hmm. Before we get to that, Dr. Abigail, I'd like to say I did go look on Amazon. Adam and Regina, Reading Scripture After Genetic Science. It's due out apparently on paperback on January 31st of 2017. Oh, okay. So we got a couple months to go still. And, Dr. Applegate, before I go to you with that question as well, I'd like to remind everyone that you're listening to a Deeper Waters podcast. Everything we do here is listener-supported. I I don't get paid to have these guests on, and I certainly can't pay them. I wish I could, but I can't. If everyone comes on here, they come their own free will, and because they just want to talk about the subject, which is really awesome. But if you would like to take part in the ministry, where we do have a website, and we are switching to a new one soon. I believe the locale is going to be deeperwatersapologetics.com. So you might want to keep that in mind depending on when you're listening to this. But right now it's deeperwaters.ddns.net. The way of donating will still be the same, but you go to our site, and there's a section on the side, and it says, help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. Where if you go there, and you click the link in it, you'll get taken to the ministry of Risen Jesus. Have you gone to the right place? Yes, you have. Though the people at Risen Jesus, Mike and Debbie Lacona, they're my in-laws, and they handle everything in the <coughs> area of donations. Debbie is a financial guru, and she's well familiar with all the taxes and such, so she knows how to do this the best, and I trust her with it. So what you do is you make your donation to Risen Jesus, and then you contact Mike or Debbie or me or Allie and say, hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. And they'll make sure we get that donation. It will be tax deductible. And if you can be a monthly donor, which we have some, if you can do that, you're the bread and butter of what we do. That's awesome. I really wish we could do something for you right now. It's not in the cards. And then you can go on Amazon, buy ebooks I have either written or co-written. You can find, for instance, one I've talked about here, Defining Inerrancy, or one that I've written myself, The Creed of the Ages, The Apostles' Creed in Today's Christian, and one that I did a debate with an atheist on the problem of natural evil, which I think could be very relevant to this topic. And then another way we you can support it, and we have a lady on here who I'm sure could back me with this, is that women tend to like jewelry for some reason. And if you guys want to get out there on good terms with ladies, well, guess what? We have a place where you can buy jewelry. And whatever you buy, 25% of that, if you do it this way, will go to deeper water. So if you buy an item for 100 bucks, we're going to get 25 bucks. So guys, you can get something very special for your lady to make up for that past screw-up that you did, or make up for that future screw-up that we all know you're going to do, and that I'm going to do. <laughs> Dr. Abbott, would, would you agree with me on that one, that love the jewelry? <laughs> Women do tend to love jewelry. I have a four-year-old who is already asking for uh, sparkly jewels for Christmas. Yes, it starts young. <laughs> well, let's go to both of you, 
since I've already got you here, Dr. Applegate, is there any organization you'd like to see people donate to as well? Oh, I, I would love to see people uh, think about, pray about a donation to, to BioLogos. We are uh, very much supported by people's generosity as well. Mm-hmm. And that's a uh, that's tax deductible donation, right? It is. You can go on our website, uh, biologos.org, B-I-O-L-O-G-O-S.org, and, and look for the Give button. Mm-hmm. Dr. Stump, do you have an organization you'd want to add? or? I'm that same organization, so my livelihood, too, depends on uh, people's generosity. And we hope people see uh, donations to these ministries as investments in the kingdom of God, right? Mm-hmm. We're not. I don't think any of us in the work that we do for the money. Uh, <laughs> our bills have to be paid, and these organizations uh, uh, thrive because of the generosity of people who are committed to the to the ministries. So, yeah, I've had I've had people get in touch with me or some that ministries I answer questions for and say, "Yeah, all you Christians, you're just in it for the money." You know, like I mean, say, "Yeah, would you like to see my bank statements and such if I could show them to you?" You take a look at those, and I think you'll see very quickly, I am not in this for the money. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, it reminds me that, you know, Jesus did tell us to, to love him, love God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I think um, both what you do and what we do at BioLogos in large part is trying to help people love God with their minds, um, their whole self. And um, so I appreciate what you're you're doing and having these hosting these conversations. Yeah, but Dr. Alfred, we got the answer from Dr. Stump, but we didn't get from you. What what do you think Christians should do with yeah, um, that's a great question. I think, you know, it'd be helpful. I, I have it here in ESV. I'll just read from um verse twelve uh, through fourteen. Um it says, Therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin was not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Um, I think it's interesting how, uh, you know, this little clause in verse 12. So yes, there's sort of this analogy between Adam and Christ uh, but it says death spread to all men because all sinned. And I'm sure that's different in different translations. But um, I think the overall point is that all of us are sinners and that salvation comes through Jesus Christ. And so um, I, I I think there are various ways in which you can uh, make a case that, you know, perhaps Adam didn't have to be a historical figure. Um, this is one of the places in Scripture that, uh, for me, makes me want to to be really careful about that, and so I, I definitely lean towards, um, but am not, you know, I, I'm very respectful of people who would say there's not a biblical case to be made for a historical Adam, but um, somebody who is not trained in the original languages and, and all, um, this does sound to me like uh, Paul might be talking about that. Um, Adam is a historical person, but I think overall it's kind of like the flood example we talked about before. You could focus on that question and, you know, lose the forest through the trees because you're not seeing the point that all of us are sinners in a need of uh, salvation and it's um, the free gift of, of grace. Um, 
through which we we get that salvation in Christ. Yeah, I, I think it's something important to stress here because unfortunately, biologists does get a hard rap a lot of times. That you and I and others, I mean, I'm including like the United Doctors Tempest, where we could all get together with some others and have a good Bible study, and none of you are in a position of yeah, let's just be as liberal as we can with text, and if we disagree, we're just for it out. Now, we'd all be seriously wrestling with the text together. Mm-hmm. Right. I think there's sure. an important uh, point to make here, too, historically, about the interpretation of this passage, mm-hmm. where uh, I think in our consciousness of the, the relationship of Adam, it often goes back to Augustine, and Augustine's usually uh, given the honor of of articulating the doctrine of original sin and primarily from this passage but it's pretty well documented now that he was working from a Latin text that was probably not translating this passage very correctly so that many of the earlier translations would say would literally would, would say from verse 12 there that in Adam all sinned because that's the way the Latin uh, was written Whereas you just heard Catherine read that, no, the, the proper translation is that death spread to all because all have sinned. Right. So the emphasis there, again, is that we have all sinned. We are all responsible. It's not as though uh, that, that you have to have Adam doing all of this on our behalf, right? Because all of us have sinned. And so to emphasize that point, and help to uh, n- uh, not take away entirely, but to at least lessen uh, the degree that Paul's argument depends on on a historical Adam in that sense. I've found it amazing when I encounter people who say, well, you know, if there was no Adam and Eve and there is no original sin, there is no original sin, there is no resurrection, I think the first off a case of resurrection stands or falls on its own, and second, I mean, I believe in a historical Adam, but I don't need that to make the case that, you know, you just turn on the news, and I think you'll find pretty quickly that we have a sin problem in the world anyway. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Uh, Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Tim. Another one of the uh, issues that comes up for us constantly is people who say, well, if there was no Adam, then why why did Christ have to die for sin? And I think that really confuses two very different questions, uh, being the question of our state, which is sinful, sinful, versus how we came to be in that state. And so sometimes I'll use the analogy of if we were out hiking somewhere and we came across a dog that was injured, we don't have to know the history of how that happened in order to know we better find some help. Yeah. Right? So we can look pretty clearly at the state of things today and say, we need some help. Yeah. And it's, it's definitely a fair question to ask, how did we come to be in this state? But it doesn't take away the fact that we clearly see that we need help. Yeah. I think G.K. Chesterton once said that original sin is probably the most empirically proved of our doctrine of a Christian right. <laughs> And he, he talked about that if you meet some young boys who are skinning a cat for pleasure, you can either deny original sin, or you can deny the reality of evil itself. I mean, but some modern theologians have thought it's a reasonable situation to deny the cat. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about the evolutionary 
process some. I mean, a lot of people think it seems like a sort of deistic thing, that God winds it up and looks at evolution and watches them so and looks at But by God, there's human beings down there. What, what are we going to do with those? I mean, how is that, if, is God involved? I mean, if evolution is true, and we're going with the assumption that it is, since I'm not a scientist here, but if, if we say evolution is true, is God involved, and if so, how? Well, that's a very uh, uh, important question. And I'm going to first uh, try to answer with another analogy to say, is God involved in the creation of us as individuals? And I hope our answer to that is yes. He knit us together in our mother's womb. Well, it turns out that we also know pretty well scientifically how that happens, right? You know, your mom and your dad had something to do with that, and we understand the process pretty well. Do we go from that to saying, oh, therefore God didn't have anything to do with me? And we don't do that. So why, why do we have to do that in the evolutionary process to say we have a pretty good scientific understanding of this process? That doesn't mean God has nothing to do with it. What it might mean, and this gets into some uh, trickier uh, philosophy of science, what it might mean, and I'm... Uh, partial to this to this way of thinking is that our scientific descriptions and our theological descriptions are operating at different levels and it's tricky to integrate those into one seamless coherent account some people will want to say god is involved in the evolutionary process because he jumps into the uh, genetic mutations and causes certain of those mutations to happen well, I think that's possible to defend that. I have some very good friends who would defend that view. Um, what that does is turn, uh, you know, all of God's action into miraculous action in a sense, though, right? So instead of saying God works through these processes for which we have scientific descriptions, you know, they're they're saying science can't explain it so we're sticking God in to fill in the gaps. You know, this is a point you made earlier. So, one way we can talk about it then is uh, from the perspective of randomness. So this is what trips a lot of people up. And Catherine has actually written about this on the Biologist website. Um, but to say is the process random and people will get nervous that evolution is random and therefore God can't have anything to do with it. Well, maybe it's not as random as we think. You know, the, there's a one school of thought of evolutionary convergences led by a Christian at, at Cambridge University, Simon Conway Morris, who points out that there are a lot of regularities in the way things develop in the process of evolution, whether we're talking about wings that develop independently a number of times or the way our, our camera eye works developed independently a number of times, he would like to make the case that the process of evolution is more predictable than we've given credit for. And there was a, a very prominent uh, disagreement between him and, and uh, Stephen Jay Gould, where Stephen Jay Gould, the atheist or at least agnostic uh, evolutionary biologist, said if we were to rewind the uh, tape of life and play it again, we'd get completely different things because the process is so random. 
Well, Simon Conway Morris and the people in his camp say if we were to rewind the tape and play it again, we'd get things remarkably similar because this is the way the process has been set up. And from the Christian perspective, I look at that and even think that it sounds a lot like the fine-tuning evidence that we hear more about in the cosmological realm, where it looks as though the system itself may have been designed to bring people like, to bring organisms like us out the other end. So I think it's completely consistent to affirm on the one hand, God intentionally created us. He intentionally created human beings in his own image. And on the other hand, to affirm, and evolution is the best scientific description we have of that process. Dr. Applegate, anything you want to add? Yeah, I thought that was very um, very well put, Jim. Um, a couple of other thoughts came to mind when I was um, thinking about this question and, and hearing Jim talk. One is um, there's a, a famous um, physicist and theologian, uh, John Pokinghorn, Sir John Pokinghorn in England, who's written a ton on, on science and faith. And he has this good example of um, why is the tea kettle boiling? Oh, yeah. And uh, yeah, and so, you know, of course, maybe it's because uh, the gas is um, heating up the water and causing it to boil. And of course, uh, the second answer is it's boiling because I want to make a cup of tea. And I love that example. I mean, I've heard it a, a bunch of times, but every time it helps me remember it's, there's not this sort of this conservation of explanations. And so as long as, you know, as soon as you get the natural explanation, then the God explanation is over and done. Um, and the, the space for God is increasingly small. No, they're just, they're like Jim is saying, they're operating on different planes we have physical things happening in the world, physical causation um, operating in one level, and we have um, God operating uh, through his, you know, accomplishing his purposes for in, in some mysterious way that, you know, I, I certainly don't understand how those two things fit together in any sort of causal, uh, you know, relationship. But I, but I do think they go together. I think God is accomplishing his purposes in creation. Um, creation is participating and fulfilling God's will. Um, and, I, you know, this isn't a new concept. Like, it, even in my tradition, in the Reformed tradition, um, which I've been a part now for quite a while, almost a dozen years, um, the Westminster Confessions of Faith has a, an article on providence and one of the statements there is that God in his ordinary providence makes use of means and yet is free to work without, above, or against them at his pleasure. So certainly affirm that miracles um, miracles are, are reality. I mean, I, I, I think they're real things, um, but that God normally works through regular means of things he's made. And so, you know, some chance conversation I have with somebody at a bus stop, which leads me to make a phone call and, you know, meet the next person. Or, you know, when I met my husband, it, it was this chance moment where we were in a, a biblical counseling seminar and somebody had taken his seat at the last minute. So he ran around and found a new seat right as it was about to start right next to me. And so we, we struck up a conversation. Um, those things, there's nothing miraculous about that, but I think God was involved in it. And, um, you know, the, the creation of a, a baby, as Jim pointed out, is such a perfect um, explanation where we, we completely think that God is involved with that, and yet it happens by 
a uniform regular process. Um, I think one thing that gets forgotten sometimes is that even a physical, biological, you know, meteorological, uh, geological process, it seems like it's happening on its own, that it's sort of outside God and that God would just sort of need to intervene and, you know, tweak things a little bit to keep them going according to plan. But that's very different from sort of the older, much older, what I would say, biblical view that God is actually working through all of those things all the time. So it's not that there's a tremendous series of miracles, but that, you know, God, God is involved. There's no such thing that's a natural process that's kind of removed somehow from God's fingertips. Um, and yet I think there is freedom. I mean, uh, there's freedom for, for people to make decisions, um, and to sin against God and to, um, respond to God's call upon their life. There's freedom for, um, you know, the things that God has made to be what they are. So there's both, you know, I'm speculating a lot because I, I, these are deep things, deep mysteries, but, um, but I do think it's, it's in accordance with traditional views of providence to say that God would work through a gradual process that would involve mutation and natural selection and sexual selection and um, genetic drift and all these other mechanisms that we talk about in evolutionary science. You know, I find it important to take that up. I think if you go with a God of a gap, I mean, like I said, for me, the question of whether or not evolution is true, not doesn't change anything, but people are often tell me, whether evolution is true, God is out of a job. And I say, look, go to passage like Colossians 1, 15 through 18. Christ is holding the universe together eternally by his power. It sounds to me like no matter what happened, if a universe is being held together, God is never out of a job. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, some people are looking say, and some atheists have said this as well, that evolution is, is a tooth and claw process relying on predation and everything else and surely God when you says especially when we see that God created the world that the text says over and over is good what is good about predation like this well if we didn't have um, animal death and uh, predation I think we would be overrun by uh all kinds of harmful things. I mean, the world would be full of bacteria and it already is, but there, you know, if nothing ever died, um, if we didn't have predation, you wouldn't have these wonderfully beautiful, um, interconnected, um, interspecies relationships we have, um, between different, you know, animal groups and plants. Um, everything's, you know, beautifully ordered and yet there's this interrelatedness and, and death of one makes makes a place and materials for the life of another, and so we we could not eat if there was no you know and no plant death. Um, not that we need animal death for to sustain our lives, but plants are living things too. Um, you know, predation helps keeps keeps populations in check, and so there's I think a great just sort of natural purpose for thinking about you know, animal, animal death is as hearted as it is for us. I think in modern America where we're really divorced from 
um, how we get our food so often. We don't we don't like to see really graphic images of animals tearing each other apart. There's something, you know, seems really violent and ter- terrible about that. And it is terrible for <laughs> for the rabbit being eaten by a coyote, coyote I'm sure. Um, but it's also, um, we see, what is it, Psalm 104, where it talks about, you know, God giving uh, food to the lions. You know, it's not as if somehow that's um, a really bad thing that he's doing. The lions are part of his glorious creation, and, and they're made to be predators. So it doesn't undo the problem of natural evil, um, but I think it's good to see that death in the Bible is not always portrayed as, you know, universally evil or terrible. Dr. Stump, anything you want to add? Well, this uh, problem of natural evil is certainly a problem. Right. And I'm not sure that I agree that evolution makes it any more of a problem than, uh, than without, because we still have the issue of, oh, lots of... Uh, you know, natural evils, whether we're, we're talking about earthquakes and tornadoes or uh, the long history of, of life that, that dies. Um, evolution, I think, even has some ways to give some answers. I, don't, I wouldn't at all pretend to uh, have the definitive solution to the problem of natural evil. evil. As Catherine says, I don't think Scripture really even... Uh, tries to uh, account for this, right? Other than the fact that our faith is fundamentally one where good things can come from what we think are bad. Like and even crucifixion. death. So the crucifixion, crucifixion itself. Yeah. We, so I'm very happy to say that the universe as a whole is cruciform in shape, mm-hmm. that we can see good coming out of this. But then evolution, there are some, there are some interesting ways to, to think about uh, the good that can come out of this. So one good thing that comes out of the long history of evolution is there's a much greater diversity of species that can exist in the evolutionary process than there would otherwise be. Most estimates are that 99% of the species that have lived on Earth are extinct now, and Without the process of evolution, there would be lots of kinds of things that never would have existed. And so this might speak to uh, the lavishness of God's creation, that he's chosen a process that allows for lots and lots of different kinds of things to exist. And then for humans in particular, I mean, we fully accept that humans have a special place, that we are the ones that were created in the image of God. And many of the capacities that we have that have at times been identified with uh, the image of God, whether that's reason or language or morality, we see that these are capacities that have developed over time and that we possess them to a degree that no other species does. But there are precursors that we find in these other species that have allowed for the kind of capacities that we have. So there's a fantastic quote, and I won't get it completely right here, from Father Ernan McMullen, who taught uh, history and philosophy of science at Notre Dame for a long time, that looks at our, the relatedness that we have to all species in our DNA. Jesus himself shared. And so, yes, Jesus became flesh in the form of a human being, 
He was a homo sapien. But in his DNA as well, we find remnants of the other species that there are on Earth. And so when he took on flesh, he took on this, this flesh that has a history to it. And in that sense, uh, you know, becomes one of these things that we're all related to down here. And his redemption, we think, too, ultimately will set things right in the world. But includes all of creation, not just humans, right? So the, the new heavens and the new earth, uh, will in, we, we think, will include the, the created order that is transformed. So um, there are lots of other things to be said about the problem of natural evil, but uh, we recognize for sure that this is difficult, but it's difficult no matter what your perspective is on evolution. It doesn't make it any easier to, uh, to say that... You know, all things were created independently of each other, but we still find that they have all died and passed away and into extinction. That still creates a problem. So, I think one resource you all could go to if listening out there if you're interested in this, because uh, Dr. Stump talks some about evolutionary defenses in light of natural evil and such. I haven't interviewed the authors before on this topic, but the book God and Evil has several chapters on this, and one chapter is Evil Creation Evolution by Carl Giberson and Francis Collins together. So if you're interested in seeing what a theodicy like that looks like, go there. Now, one reason I think this can be so hard for us today also, because we talk about animals some, and that's what's been called the Disneyfication of our culture, where we've seen all these Disney stories about animals and such, and they're so cute and cuddly, and then we think about animals dying in a world that is red and tooth and claw with blood flowing everywhere and such, and it just doesn't make sense then. Can you restate the, the... Well, I think it's... It is hard, I mean, to reconcile... Um, a world where there's so much death and disease and suffering and a lot of it seems pointless from our perspective. We can't, we can't understand it. Um, I, I'm not prepared to say it is pointless. Um, I, I think that God in his purposes does allow things which are really difficult. Um, I also think, you know, it's not, there's this, there's always this tendency, I think, to say, well, you know, if I were God, I wouldn't make it this way, you know, so therefore, this isn't the way God made the world. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, and (laughs) I think that we, you know, we fall into that trap, too, when we're thinking about, um, you know, scripture sometimes, or if we looked at scripture, we might see that there's a lot of things about scripture that you know, gosh, I I just don't see why God did it that way. You know, why did the Israelites have to wander around for 40 years, you know, as punishment for, um, for (laughs) talking out of turn and crying against God. Um, and they weren't allowed to enter the promised land because they were afraid, you know, (laughs) why did God do it that way? Why were they enslaved for 400 years? Um, why was there such a long period of silence after the last prophets before the coming of uh, John the Baptist and Christ, and why, why was salvation accomplished um, by this, you know, 
<laughs> powerless, weak carpenter who they wanted this glorious king who was going to defeat the Romans, and instead he was crucified on a, a bloody cross. Like that's not what we would have done probably if we'd written the story. Um, but I think it's glorious because God's power is made perfect in weakness. And so, you know, it's not that different. I think what Jim said about this being a, a cruciform world, cruciform universe, um, is really a powerful thing to reflect on. The fact that um, we we see a lot of similarities there, I guess, with what we see in Scripture. And while it is kind of a, you know, we're not used to thinking about that, and we don't, We'd like to have everything sanitized and tied up nicely um, in our culture, but that's that's just not in accordance with the scriptures that that we believe in. Doctor, something anything you add about that or about Disneyfication of it? Um. So I have three sons. They're uh, almost adults now, and they have grown up in a fairly typical suburban community and my parents live out in the country and so when we'd go to you know my kids grandma and grandpa's house it was always funny to me that when they were little kids they would say oh look there's a cow because i mean they've never seen a live cow before Mm. and there's something not just in disney but in moving away and into cities where we buy our food wrapped in cellophane at the supermarket that we are not in touch with the realities of the natural world the way our ancestors were, where if you wanted to eat meat, you had to go kill the meat first. Mm-hmm. And I suspect that has played a role along with this disnification that you talk about in having us uh, a little bit removed from the way the world really is, from understanding that. So that it's a shock to our system then when we see on the Discovery Channel the the rabbit getting eaten by the coyote, like Mm -hmm. Catherine said. Whereas many earlier generations, and I would think the cultures in which Scripture was was written, would not have been surprised by that. They would have understood that as this is the way the world is. So that we have those passages in Psalms and in Job that that are affirming God's goodness even in the face of predation. And of uh, you know saying this is this is glorious to see the way the world works. So um, yeah, I think Disneyfication is a real thing, and us moving into the cities and buying food at supermarkets is a real thing that affects perhaps some of our uh, intuitions on these things that are not the same intuitions that the first audiences of Scripture would have had. Yeah, I uh, I was just going to add to that. I, you know, I think the first time when I read the Old Testament through um, as a young adult and realized, um, you know, just how <laughs> really thought about how many animals would have been sacrificed in ancient Israel for uh, the sins of the people and just the, the whole system of sacrifice that God set up. I mean, it's not just uh, gratuitous death. It's death for purpose to set up you know, the coming of Christ and atonement for sin and the reality and the real cost of sinfulness. Like we are separated from from that sort of thing now. And, you know, I don't necessarily think every time I commit a sin that it's deserving of, you know, the whole life of a, a ram or something. Like it's, it's a really serious matter. But I think that, you know, it was just so much more, um, they were closer to that back then. They understood what it meant 
um, and farmers do today and, and people that, you know, hunt and, and everything. So, yeah, I think we're just, um, we, we recoil from that, but it, that is the way the world is. Well, it's been a great conversation here, but our two hours are really coming to a close. The book that we've talked about some is How I Changed My Mind About Evolution, Evangelicals Reflect on Faith and Science. Right now on Amazon, the Kindle edition is 8.58, and the paperback is 9.03. Uh, Dr. Applegate, do you have a, a blog or website or way people can get in touch with you if they want to find out more about you? Oh, sure. Um, our website is biologos.org, B-I-O-L-O-G-O-S.org, um, and you can go on there. There is a blog. Um, Dim and I both have blogs. Several of us do that are on staff. Um, which you can get to by by clicking on the blog link. Um, but if people have individual questions, uh, they can also write to me by email. Uh, it's Catherine.applegate at biologos.org uh, is the best way to reach me. And Doctor, some the same question to you. Is it is it the same answer for you aside from your email being different, of course, or do you have another place outside biologos that people can reach you? I have migrated all of my online activities to the Biologos website. So, yeah, biologos.org, under the blogs, that there's mine there. My contact info is listed as well, but my email is james.stump at biologos.org. Okay. And, and uh, you're the one I'm addressing here. Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to leave for the Deeper Waters audience today? I just want to say thank you for the opportunity. It was a, a great pleasure to have the conversation, and I um, I hope that many people listening will uh, be encouraged um, to hear the kinds of things that we've been wrestling over, and um, the fact that we've been wrestling over them is uh, evidence that Christians can, um, you know, take Scripture very seriously, and yet also um, take science seriously, and not just accept any interpretation of either without uh, really engaging it. Anything you want to add, Dr. Spence? Uh, let me just say, too, that I appreciate the chance to talk and that it's important what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And uh, perhaps my parting message to those who are listening is to not shut down people who are uh, curious about these issues, to give safe spaces where people can talk and ask questions and explore. It's really important for the health of uh, health of the church to be able to do that. Well, I'd like to thank you all for coming on. Hopefully we'll see you back here again sometime. Thank you. Thank you. And I'd like to remind everyone that next week I'm not going to be here at Anime Convention with her wife. She comes first. But week after that, we're having Mary Flo Ridley on talking about how to talk to your children about sex. For now, I am Nick Peters, and I am signing off. <laughs>